I have made it equally plain that I think the Negro is included in the word men used in the Declaration of Independence. I believe the declaration that all men are created equal is the great fundamental principle upon which our free institutions rest. That Negro slavery is violative of that principle. That by our frame of government, the states which have slavery are to retain it or surrender it at their own pleasure. And that all others are constitutionally bound to leave them alone about it. Abraham Lincoln, October 18, 1858. This is Plausibly Live. Somewhere around the, oh, I don't know, seventh or eighth day of the trip across the country, I hit on a realization. I like to listen to podcasts, as you know, but podcasts don't last that long. Uh, Bill's show is a great example. Bill's show is a three-hour radio show. It's an hour and a half podcast. Uh, My own show, I try to keep it under 30 minutes usually today may go a little long sorry um even bongino is only you know 55 minutes and when you're driving usually eight to ten hours a day uh, for the most part except for the for the days when we were staying somewhere they don't really last long enough to get you through the whole trip i had a friend i have a friend he's not dead um old shipmate of mine who I was having a conversation with a couple weeks ago about audiobooks and I and I actually said to him look I don't like audiobooks I like to read books I like to hold them in my hands I like the smell I like the feel I'm not even I have a Kindle but I guarantee you that almost every Kindle book I have I have on my shelf the real book um But he said to me, you know, when you're traveling and you're getting ready to travel, he said, you might want to think about it. So about the seventh or eighth day of the trip, I said to myself, you know, maybe that's not a bad idea. So I signed up for an Audible account and it gave me, it says you can download three books. What do you want to download? And and you can start listening to these. And... I started scrolling through it, and I wasn't seeing anything that was jumping off the page at me, but I finally settled on two of the three, well, three of the books eventually, but that day I settled on two of them, uh, Cosmos by Carl Sagan, which I had been listening to the videos. I I was playing the videos on my uh, account and and, uh, just listening to them, but now I had the book, so I started listening to that. I was disappointed by that because the book is narrated by LeVar Burton, who is a brilliant narrator, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't Carl Sagan, which is what I wanted. And I realize he's dead, so I'm not likely to get that. Um, And eventually I settled, the third book I got was A Hitchhiker's Guide, because my wife is interested in that. She finally saw the movie and uh, was intrigued by that, so I thought, well, I'll get that. What was that second book? that as I was headed towards Gettysburg, down the Chambersburg Pike in Pennsylvania, that I I picked out just because it had to do with the subject matter we were dealing with. And what I hadn't realized was I had read this book many, many years ago, so long ago that I really forgot what was in it. And that book is uh, Bruce Catton's The Coming Fury, which is part of the 100-year anniversary of the Civil War that he wrote back in the 60s. I hadn't gotten 
two chapters into that book when the audio book, because I'm listening to it driving and I'm, I'm already having problems because I am a prodigious note taker. Um, I'll tell you a funny story about me taking notes. I was in a meeting at radio. When I was on the radio, we were having a meeting with the with some big wig. I don't remember who it was. And I had my laptop with me. So I'm sitting at one end of the table. He's sitting at the other, the program director, the whatever, sitting there. And I'm typing away. And after the meeting, he pulled me aside. And he's just, he is just angry as all get out. He's like, you, you were disrespectful. You weren't paying attention. You were this, that, and the other. And I'm just looking at him like, well, what are you talking about? And he says, this so person was talking and you were typing. And, and I just turned my laptop around to let him see that I was typing notes about what the guy was saying. He was like, oh. So I am a prodigious note taker, um, which is really weird because I, I usually I, I, I scan them and then save them. And the, anyway, point being of all this that I was listening to this and I'm like, crap, I got to take notes. So I'm doing audio texts to myself and to Bill and to Rod and to, to Mike Mil- Bennett, the, the Millsarp writer. And I, I'm like, I, uh, I got to write stuff down and I couldn't do it. And that's the problem with audio books. I can't even underline stuff. I can't bend pages. Ugh. Anyway, started reading, listening to the reading of Bruce Catton's The Coming Fury. And of course, as soon as we got to the hotel, I immediately bought it on my Kindle and ordered a hard copy of it from a used bookstore uh, that will be delivered sometime soon, I hope. The story opens in the, in the, in the late December, early January of 1859-1860. A new Congress, uh, it, it, well, it's actually January of 1859, a new Congress has been elected uh, in the 1858 elections. And while everything in general is about what people expected. The Senate is Democrat. The president is a Democrat. The House of Representatives, on the other hand, is an utter mess. No party has a majority. The Republican Party has a plurality. In other words, they have the most delegates. But the rest of the House has the majority, and it's divided between the Democrat Party, which interestingly enough, in the 1850s and 60s, called itself, quote, the democracy, unquote. They actually hold a majority in the sense that most of the splinter parties are what doing what we today would call caucusing with the Democrats. So even though the Republicans hold the plurality, there's more Republicans, they don't actually control the House. This is actually the story behind, um, you know, recently we had the, the election of McCarthy as the Speaker of the House. And remember everybody going on and on about, well, this hasn't happened in over 100 years. They had 44 votes for Speaker of the House that year. And it was all because nobody could get what they wanted. So the Democrat Party, the Democracy Party, the Democracy as they referred to themselves, while they had people caucusing with them, they weren't. I don't know, extreme enough for some of these smaller parties. Neither were the Republicans. And because of that, you had this situation where nobody could get elected as the Speaker of the House, which meant nothing was going on. And of course, the, re- the, the issue was absolutely, hands down, 
slavery. By 1859, slavery was at least dividing the politics in the country, if not the people in the country, in ways that were just absolutely bizarre. In fact, one of the California congressmen, a guy by the name of Broderick, was upset because one of the California Supreme Court justices wrote a, who was pro-slavery and wanted slavery extended to California, Broderick, the congressman, was anti-slavery. They ended up in a duel, and we don't have time to go through the whole story. I think we've talked about it before on the show, but this was so hot of an issue that these two ended up in a duel in California. And Broderick, the congressman, didn't realize that his pistol had a, a very trigger, hair trigger on his pistol. And when he raised his hand to shoot, he accidentally fired his pistol down, and the other guy, Terry, uh, fired into him and killed him. That's how hot the issue was. By the summer, by the spring uh, of 1860, it was, it was insane, at least politically. And this is important to understand. The politicians were very vocal and very intense about this whole deal with slavery. Over the course of the spring, the early summer of, of, of 1860, two conventions, well, more than two conventions were held, but of course, uh, the Republican convention was held in Chicago in a building called the Wigwam, which might have been the world's largest fire trap ever built. I mean, that, was, that building was scary. Um, but this is the building where the Republican convention would be held. Now, this vast and difficult subject of what happened that summer kind of begins with these conventions. The issue that divides the country is, of course, slavery. But most people, not politicians, most people felt live and let live. But there was also a lot of moral outrage about the subject being driven by folks who felt like they had to. When the Republicans gathered in the wigwam in April of, or May 18th of, uh, in May of, sorry, 1860, the front runner when they got there was a guy by the name of William Seward. Now, you know this guy, even if you don't. Uh, this is the guy who will go on to become Secretary of State and under the presidency of Andrew Johnson in 1867, he is the guy that will buy Alaska from Russia. You've heard of Seward's Folly, right? And he will become that guy. But in early May of 1860, he is literally the favorite to become president of the United States because, as we're going to see in a moment, the Democrat, the democracy, is so divided that it's generally assumed that the Republican is going to win, no matter who it is. They could literally nominate, as we used to say in the Navy, a bent trash can, and it would probably win. Seward is problematic, though. Even though he's the front runner, everybody likes him. And in fact, Southerners are accepting of him, which is kind of strange. They prefer him in many ways and in many cases to their own candidate, who is their front runner who we'll talk about in a moment, but his name is Stephen A. Douglas. William Seward is so popular 
that on May 17th, he is almost proclaimed by acclamation as the Republican candidate. But they have to have a vote. They can't just they can't just do it by acclamation. There's nothing in the Republican uh, bylaws that allows for that. The call for a vote happens that evening, but the clerk of the convention informs the delegates that he, the tally sheets aren't ready. The paperwork is not done. I need mm, 10 minutes to a half an hour to get this ready. And the, the delegates who are so certain at this point that Seward is going to be the nominee, nominee uh, decide that they'd rather go out and party in Chicago. I'm not making this up. And so they adjourn with the understanding that the next morning they'll get together and nominate Seward on the first ballot. The problem with Seward is that he has a long association, or at least some association, with a party that, if you're looking at the video, you see Kentucky and Maryland there, have stripes in them. So they're neither Democrat nor Republican. They're, strip, they're striped. And what are those stripes? Those stripes represent something called the Know-Nothing Party. The Know-Nothing Party, which, with which Seward has been associated, is a huge problem for the GOP, for the Republicans. Why? Because basically it is an anti-immigrant party. They don't want any immigration whatsoever. None. And the problem that the Republicans have is that their power base is in what is known as the Northwest, what we would call Illinois, Indiana, uh, Minnesota, Michigan, Ohio. And that is full of immigrants, people who have immigrated to America. They're full citizens. They've become citizens, but they're immigrants. And it's believed that they may not support Seward, at least not as enthusiastically as they might support someone else. And of course, there is someone else. Who is that someone else? Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln is a consummate politician. He is, we, I, I don't think we give him credit for being the politician that he is. I, I, I really don't. But he knows this. And that delay, because of the paperwork, gives his people in Chicago, remember neither Seward nor Lincoln are in Chicago at the convention, that's something that used to be the way it was done. It's not that way anymore, obviously. But it gives his people in Chicago time that night to gather with several of the northwestern states and one other state, Pennsylvania, and to begin to negotiate with them about, eh, Seward's not going to win. He can't win because he can't carry the northwest. Lincoln can. Pennsylvania is convinced, now whether that's by the weight of the argument or by, by backroom smoke-filled room deals, is still up for argument. But Pennsylvania decides that night, in the middle of the night, that at least on the first ballot, they're going to go for, for Lincoln. Other states also agree, Indiana, some others as well. None of the other delegates know anything about this. Seward's people know nothing about this. And so when the next morning the, the, the Republicans gather inside that wigwam, 
the first vote, which is expected to carry Seward to the nomination, doesn't. Now, he still has more than 100 votes than Lincoln does, but he doesn't get the nomination. And this is, well, this is a a ground-shaking event. On the second ballot, Lincoln pulls even more votes as states begin to realize that there is a problem with Seward. He can't win. Lincoln can. By the third ballot, it requires 202 votes of the convention to win the nomination. Lincoln gets 201 and a half. Literally, in the history of the country, no one has gotten that many votes and not gotten the nomination. He, at this point, everybody understands that Seward's not going to get it. On the fourth ballot, everybody, every every state except New York goes for Lincoln. He wins the nomination. Seward's people are just crushed. They are just, what the hell happened here? An hour ago, you know, two hours ago, our guy was, because we're going to win. Last night, our guy was going to win. But the paperwork wasn't ready, and so we had to put it off till this morning. New York's delegation stands up in tears, we're told, and decries this. They think that something ooky has happened, but at the same time, they want this unanimous because that's the way the Republicans roll at this point. And so they change their votes and Lincoln is unanimously nominated on the fourth ballot to be the nominee for president of the United States. Now, as simple as that seems, I mean, you you think about this, this is one of those things where, you know, Okay, Lincoln becomes the nominee because the paperwork wasn't ready the night before. On the Democrat side, and again, they they referred to themselves back then as the democracy. They are the democracy. The, the, The Democrat Party sees itself as the real Americans. They don't they don't consider any other party to be as American as they are. And they are primarily driven and dominated by Southerners. But their nominee, their huge Uh, leading nominee is Stephen A. Douglas, a senator from Illinois. You may be familiar with him because of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, which Douglas won the election in 1858 to become senator. So he's already beaten Lincoln once. There's a huge problem, though, with Stephen Douglas, and that is that he believes in something called sovereignty, sovereignty of the states. In the popular sovereignty. Sorry, I couldn't come up with the name. Popular sovereignty. In essence, what this means, in the middle of this whole brouhaha over slavery and the expansion of slavery, it was Douglas who negotiated the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, uh, those kinds of things. But he believes very passionately in this thing called popular sovereignty, which is it's up to the people of the state and or the territory as they become a state to decide whether they should have slavery or not. Whereas the position of most of the fire readers in the South is that it's not up to them at all. It's it, it it's up to the government to protect slavery because nowhere in the Constitution does it give the government the ability to stop slavery. The Southern fire readers, and that's what they're called, fire readers, believe that the Northern abolitionists want to destroy them. They want to take away their slaves. And they believe that Douglas is 
soft on abolition. And they will never, ever accept him. And without those seven, possibly eight southern states, Douglas can't win. There is a man who is also a senator. He's from Alabama. His name is William Lancey. He has a plan. Now, again, this is the kind of thing that if you wrote it up in a movie, people would go, this would never happen. Yancey's plan in the spring of 1860, as the Democrat Party meets for its convention in Charleston, South Carolina, his plan is to break up the union. Now, he's not solely responsible for this plan. There are obviously a lot of other people involved, but he's the one that puts it in motion. His plan is to inflict the breakup of the Union and form a separate confederacy that is based on the idea that slavery should must be protected. It's weird because he is what is known as a fire eater, and he's a leading personality in the country at the time. He's constantly quoted in the papers. He's constantly interviewed. But poll after poll shows that most of the people, including the ones in Alabama, don't support this idea of breaking up the Union. But Yancey is just absolutely determined. He thinks this is the only way to keep the so-called black Republicans, led by Lincoln, to destroy slavery. So he comes up with a plan at the 1860 convention in Charleston. If Davis is the nominee and looks to be, or even looks to be the nominee, or if his platform is not protective enough of slavery, he and the other seven states will walk out of the convention. They'll withdraw, and there won't be enough votes to nominate Davis. Then, in the election, it will split the electoral college. There won't be enough non-GOP votes to elect their candidate, and there won't, shouldn't be enough votes then to elect the Republican. This will throw the vote into the House of Representatives, which, as we talked about before, the Republicans have a majority, but not a plurality. And it's more likely, then, that these uh, Democrat states in the House of Representatives would be more likely to get behind a candidate, remember it has to be one of the candidates there, that uh, isn't Lincoln or Davis. Of course, this is what actually happens. They end up walking out of the out of the convention, they form a separate party known as the Southern Democrats, and they nominate John C. Breckinridge, who is the current vice president of the United States and a strong slave person, and they put in their platform this that when resolved that when settlers in a territory having an adequate population form a state constitution, the right of sovereignty commences. And being consummated by an admission to the Union, they stand on equal footing with the people of the other states. And that a state thus organized ought to be admitted into the Federal Union, whether its Constitution prohibits or recognizes the institution of slavery. This is the belief that as they had done in Kansas, they would be able to, to do these things. This is the nation, by the late summer of 1860... There is this idea that nobody might win the election, and 
Then what? These southern fire eaters were absolutely determined. They were so determined to break up the nation. That's their plan. Their plan is to break up the nation, to secede, to dissolve the Union, and form a separate confederacy founded on the idea that we have the right to own other people. But they did make some miscalculations. Number one, the southern people were not, at least in the summer of 1860, not in favor of secession. Time and time again, newspapers asked this question, time and time again, uh, articles were written, that the southern people did not see Lincoln as, or any of the Republicans, as absolutely a reason to secede from the Union. Particularly given that almost all of the Republican candidates, and certainly Davis, the Democrat candidate, had spoken very eloquently and at great length about not wanting to destroy slavery. Most people did not buy into that idea. The second miscalculation they made was that the defeat of Douglas as the nominee would not would, would guarantee a split electoral college. They miscalculated there badly. Uh, they weren't able to... I, I, I'm not really clear on why they weren't able to count these votes correctly, except that there was an anomaly in the 1860 election laws, and Pennsylvania and Indiana voted in October, not November. And there was an assumption then that Pennsylvania and Indiana, and or Indiana, both of which were... Um, you know, questionable states. Pennsylvania was Republican, Indiana was Republican, but they weren't strong majorities at that point. And there was this under there was this belief that maybe maybe we can pull them apart, and that would defeat whoever the Republican candidate was, or by this point Lincoln. There was a miscalculation that the election of a black Republican, Abraham Lincoln, would automatically be grounds for secession. Again, most Southerners did not feel that way. Most Southerners were accepting the idea that Lincoln said over and over again, as you, as you heard at the beginning of the show, I've said this multiple times, I do not intend to take any action about slavery. I do believe in popular sovereignty, that the, the citizens of a territory should decide, but once they decide, that's that. The last miscalculation that they made was that extremist positions are the way to go. In other words, drawing lines in the sand are the way to go. This left them with no maneuvering room at all. No, they couldn't back down without, I don't know, losing face, I guess. I, the fire readers were, were pretty unwilling to negotiate, unwilling to accept moderation. And this is what happens, of course, when you get to extremism on, on both sides or either side, is that it... it it inhibits the ability to actually communicate with one another. Now, all this came to a head yesterday because I was looking around at things, and I came across a couple of things that intrigued me, which led to a conversation with Mike, the Millsurp writer, who, by the way, I don't know if I told you this, I spent two days in Huntsville, Alabama uh, on this trip uh, for the express purpose of sitting down with Mike and having conversations with him. Mike is a fascinating guy. Um, we had a, a, a just an absolutely amazing dinner the first night. And then the second night, we took our families, our wives uh, and his little girl to dinner. And that was even better. I mean, it was just it was just a great time. And yes, we saw the Space and Rocket Center. But but really, it was about meeting 
meeting Mike in person and getting to know him. And he and I had this conversation yesterday after I came across this tweet. Now, it's from an account called Cat Turd, which is pretty funny, but at the same time, it's, it's instructive. Now, what happened yesterday was that Adam Schiff was supposed to be censured by the House of Representatives, but 20 Republicans crossed the line and voted against that. And he tweeted, he or she, because this is part of the problem with these accounts. I don't know who this guy or gal is. Dear Republican Party, get this through your thick skulls. We will never, we're never going back to the rhino, warmonger, neocon, chamber of commerce, business roundtable, donor class, establishment, Bush Republican Party. And you have zero chance without the millions of America first Trump voters. Never, period, going, period, back, period. I sent this to Mike and I said, you know, this is in many ways no different than the position of the fire eaters in 1860. Now, the, the main difference is that this is not a political leader. Cat Turd is not running for anything. He's not a senator. He or she is not a senator. They're not a newspaper editor. None of those things. This was followed, of course, by Travis and Flint, who tweeted, breaking 20 Republicans cross the aisle, vote with Democrats to end the resolution to censure Adam Schiff." Blah, blah, blah. Uh, as usual, the Republicans have failed us, sided with Democrats. Our party is a joke. And then he lists the, the 20 rhinos that crossed over. And again, where you stand on that is really irrelevant to me. Adam Schiff is, he's an extremist. But now you got extremists on the other side. And, and nobody's willing to go to the middle and moderate all this stuff, which is exactly the same problem we had in 1860. Or is it? Which is kind of the question I threw at at Mike, the mill surper. I said, I, I, is, is it the same? The anger seems similar to 1860. But you also have this situation where the vast majority of American people don't care. The vast majority of the people couldn't even tell you who Adam Schiff was or is. And in many ways, all of this outrage is being driven by social media today, just as it was in 1860. The newspapers were the social media of the day. The telegraph was the social media of the day. People used to hang around telegraph offices just to read the news as it came off the wire. Hence, the wire. Politicians today are different than they were in 1860. They don't tend to stake out positions like Lincoln and Davis did. They don't, they don't say what I believe. You heard Lincoln's words at the beginning. I believe this. Boom, 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 boom. Politicians today won't do that. They'll, you know, they'll waffle and vacillate and try not to offend anybody as opposed to actually staking out these positions. And so this leads to this reaction that you get on Twitter, on social media, from a very small percentage of the population, I'll grant you that, that may or may not in any way, shape, or form actually care. And I said to Mike, I, I don't get it. What, what's the end game? In 1860, the end game of Yancey was to break up the Union. You can't do that today. In 1860, you had a strict dividing line. Slave, not slave. Foundation of government. 
freedom and equality, all men are created equal, or we're better than those people, and so we get to to own them. That was it. And and don't send me your emails telling me about the civil war was about state rights. The only state rat involved was whether or not you could own another person. That's it. It's the only one. It's not my words. It's theirs. So what's the end game today? How do you... You can't split the nation. There's not going to be a national divorce because how do you do that? What does that look like? Am I supposed to go out and shoot up my neighbors who are liberals? It's not like they're across a state line now. None of that exists. Even here in Washington, that doesn't exist. So what's the what's the goal here? Is it just simply for one side or the other to bludgeon the other into acceptance of, of their positions? It seems that way sometimes, doesn't it? And Mike came back with an interesting idea, and I want to share the idea with you because I thought it was like most of what Mike writes. It's it's pretty it's pretty good. I wasn't sure I agreed with him at first when he when we were texting about this yesterday. And one of the things I like about Mike is he sends me these long voicemail messages that I can listen to while I'm driving my son uh, to places that he was going yesterday. He asked the question about, is social media really driving the division, or is it just a relief valve for the frustration? What do you mean, Mike? What are you talking about here? I'm not sure where you're going with this at first, I said. But in essence, what he was asking was very simply this. Is it possible that the social media of today functions as a relief valve and allows people to blow off steam in in many ways anonymously. In other words, cat turd, whoever that is, isn't being interviewed in a newspaper, isn't being interviewed on television, isn't being staked to the mast and their trousers nailed to the mast with what their position actually is. Neither are the politicians. And maybe social media is just a way to blow off that steam, that anger, without actually, you know, committing to any actual actions that they might have to take. Or more importantly, maybe it's a way to do that without having to commit themselves to the course of action that will result from whatever it is that they're ranting about on social media. Do we really think that these 20 rhinos are going to be voted out of office because Cat Turd and Travis and Flint are upset about it? Or is it just a way for Cat Turd and Travis and Flint to get clicks, make themselves feel better? And at the end of the day, we don't do we we don't follow their path. We don't take their extremist position. We don't go down the fire readers of William Yancey with the intention of breaking up the union. I thought it was an interesting idea. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, he might be right about this. He, he could very well be right that social media is actually a blessing in disguise. You know, back in 1860, if you were upset about something or if you had an opinion about something and you didn't have any other way to, to share that opinion, you know what you did? It's kind of funny. Um, you started printing your own newspaper. Maybe that's what maybe that's what social media has become today is that 
that relief valve of being able to to shout and scream about what matters to you without any actual action. Because once you start thinking about and contemplating those activities that would result from your actions, from what you demand, you start realizing that we've been down this road before. We've been through the summer of 1860 before. Last time, it didn't end well. And hopefully, we'll be smarter this time and figure out that we don't really need extremists on either side or extremism on either side. Because ultimately, that results in bigger problems than you had to begin with. So that said, I guess open up the relief valve and let's let some steam off, right? Right?